0: So question for you, would you rather, ever played that game? Would you rather? You only have two choices in this, would you rather. Would you rather go to a march or a protest to go and change something in your culture? Would you go and speak up and bring your picket signs and say, this has to stop? Would you rather go to a protest or a march? Or would you rather come to a gathering of prayer where you have to come like a room like this and confess your sins to your church? You're like, I really don't want to do either one of those things, but if I have to choose, which one are you going to choose? If if I'm guessing, if I'm a guessing man, I'm going to guess that maybe the preference might be, even if you don't like it as much, you might want to go to the protest or the march to talk about something. I'm not saying protests or marches are not things that we ought to do from time to time to make our voice heard. Sometimes that changes things in our world, in our culture, But let me ask you this, what are the things that really change your life? What are the really the things that change our world? Is it the ranting and raving and screaming most often? Or is it often, no, I need to come before the Lord and not point out the sins and the problems of others, but I need to come and confess myself. See, it's much easier, isn't it, to point to the other direction, to point at other people, and to stand in a place of judgment and say, that needs to change, even though sometimes it does. It's a lot harder to come clean with God. It's a lot harder to say, here's where I need to change. See, real change happens when we confess and we take ownership. If you look at the church over the last couple of thousand years, you know when revival in the church happens, like real revival, not the Baptist thing you did for a week, I did that, but when real revivals happen in people's hearts and lives, when marriages are changed, when relationships are changed, when sin is confessed and change happens in our lives, revival happens when we're on our knees confessing to God. Turn with me again to Matthew chapter 6. And we will look back at what many call the disciples' prayer, page 811 if you need it. Well, the words will be up here. And Jesus is going to talk. He's already talked a little bit about what a prayer of praise looks like, where we don't start prayer with gimme, gimme, gimme. We start prayer in the pattern of prayer Jesus shows us with praise for who God is and what he has done for us. Last week, we looked at the non-negotiable for prayer, that it is the fresh air of heaven that we breathe, that express our dependence on God. And it's non-negotiable. We saw the life of Jesus and how he prayed, and he prayed, and we prayed. And we said that if the God-man, who is God in the flesh, needed to pray and express dependence upon his Father in his life, how much more, how much more do we need to be a praying people? How much more do we need to be a praising people? And Jesus is going to come to his second class today as we look at this text on prayer what it looks like for disciples of Jesus to pray, the second class is on confession. At least the second class we're going to take today is on confession. You're going to see the problem. Why do we need to confess, you might ask? We're going to see the solution. What does God do when we do confess? And then real-life application to not only what confession looks like vertically before God, but horizontally with one another. Look at Matthew six, and we'll be in verses nine. Let me read the prayer again, the Lord's prayer again, nine through fifteen. Pray, pray then like this. Jesus says, "Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven." That's what we took last week. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Look really closely at verse 12 in front of you and verse 14 and 15. Let me take that again. Jesus says to his disciples, a prayer that he would never need to pray, right? His disciples need to pray in this way. Forgive us of our, what's the next word? Debts. See, I don't think Jesus is talking about a financial debt that we owe somebody. I think he's talking about a debt that we owe God. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 14, you see the same word, Used and it's trespass. You turn to Luke chapter 11 and you see this word debt and it's translated sins. See, the debt that Jesus is speaking about here is the debt that we owe God for our sins. Do you catch that? It's an accounting term. This is what we see sin is a debt. There is a weight on us because of sins. And then it says, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus is asking his disciples to confess in prayer to God their sins. Just like you forgive one another for the sins against one another, we ask God to forgive us in prayer. Remember something though, this is not about salvation in this particular prayer, the debt that we owe, it's not salvation. Even though that is true, we have a debt of sin that we owe God, we've offended God, we're the offender and we confess our sin before him and he does what? He forgives us. But it's a prayer of followers of Jesus so it's ongoing. It's restorative in nature and so it's a believer in Jesus who has already been forgiven, initially asking for God to continually daily bread, daily forgiveness Daily need, and perhaps you say about that, well, if I have confessed and trusted by faith in Christ to forgive me for my sins, why do I still need to confess? Why do I still need to confess to God when he 's already forgiven me in that way? Well, let me give you an example. I have a couple of children i have i 'm a father, and I have children, I have a son, two sons, and a daughter and there are times in relationship with one another he is they are my children, there are times in a relationship, and it goes both ways, not just this way, but it fits the illustration, there are times where the kids need to confess to mom and dad what they've done wrong. Now, let me ask you a question. When something goes wrong in that kind of relationship, am I no longer his father, her father? No, I am. There's still relationship there, but there's mending and restoration that needs to happen in that relationship. That's what it looks like for a believer to still confess their sin to God. They're forgiven transactionally before God, and there's an assurance of pardon that never changes. A true child of God never loses their childhood, childhood, it's not childhood, give me another word, never loses their position, do they? and yet there is restoration that happens in a relationship. I want to show you some passages that bring out the need for us, even as children of God, to confess to God, to repent, and what it does. Look with me at a couple of examples here. You've got them up here. Psalm 32, 3 through 5. Psalm 32 says this, "'For when I kept silent,' Imagine this, imagine that there's sin in your life that you haven't confessed to God or to others, it's secret. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away. Ever felt that feeling, the conscience, the spirit of God working in you in that way? My bones wasted away and through my groaning all day long, it stuck with you all day, what you did and what you need to do about it. For day and night, your hand is heavy upon me See, when we don't confess, there's a heaviness that God puts on us. And my strength was dried up. My bones wasting away. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. And then he says this, I acknowledge my sin to you, God, and I did not cover my iniquity, which is what we like to do with things. We like to cover it up. I said, I will confess my what? My debt. I will confess my transgression to the Lord. Look at Psalm 51. You know the Psalm of David, where he's sinned against God in an incredible way, in a deep way, and he comes to the place of confession. This is David, and he says, "For I know my debts. I know my transgressions. I know what I've done, and my sin is ever before you, God. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in, my, in your sight. Listen, this also tells us that Yes, we can sin against others, but even that sin is ultimately a sin, really against God, ultimately. But he comes and he confesses. Proverbs 28 says it like this, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. James 5.16 says it this way, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So not only do we confess To God, we confess to one another. You know that corporate prayer gathering that you didn't want to come to? The Word of God encourages us to confess our sins even to one another. Can I ask you something? This is tough, right? This is heavy today, praying to confess. But generally speaking, in just life in general, are you a person that typically can own your own part of the problem? Even though it's a little part, are you typically the person that can own it, that can take responsibility for something that's been done, even if it's shared? Or is that defense lawyer really strong in you? Maybe you say, well, it's not all my fault. Or maybe the answer is, I didn't intend to, so therefore, I didn't. It's no big deal. Well, if you wouldn't have done this, then I wouldn't have done this. Does this happen in marriage? Does this happen in friendships? Does it happen in relationships at all, or am I just the only one? I've used these, and perhaps you've used these as well. I did X, Y, Z, but you did A, B, C. Perhaps the better question you might ask, if you dare, is to ask the people around you, hey, am I the quick one? to confess and make things right. And maybe if they don't want to answer you, maybe that tells you the answer. Heavy stuff. And more importantly, in owning things, do you come clean with God? Do you come clean with God when really nobody else knows because you've kept it that way? Do you come clean? Here's your first thought today. Come clean to God With your sin. He wants us to come clean. And maybe you have to ask some deeper questions this morning. What are the reasons that I don't come clean? Perhaps it's fear, fear of consequence, fear of shame. Perhaps it's pride. Figure out what are the reasons that are holding you back for coming clean to God. Here's the deal He already knows. That's what confession means. The word confession means to say the same thing back. You remember in the garden after Adam and Eve have sinned and God shows up in the cool of the day? What does he say as the all-knowing God to his creation, Adam and Eve, after they've sinned, what does he say? Where are you? Do we not think God knows exactly what's already happened? God already knew what happened. He wanted to hear them confess to say the truth back to him, what he already knew. That's what confession is. We've got to come clean first to God with our sin. See, when we come clean, we go from darkness to light, and we have identified the problem. But here's the question. What happens when we come clean to God? I mean, is God the kind of God that will We come clean to, and He just laughs at us because we're bringing our weakness to Him? Is that the kind of God we have? Is that the one true God? Is He the kind of God that says, I'm glad you came, but I still feel hurt, so I'm going to keep punishing you and punishing you and punishing you and giving you 39 lashes until I feel better? No, that's not our God. That's the way we often treat one another when it comes to confession Is God the kind of God that when we come to him, he's like, well, what do you want me to do about it? I can't help you with that. You've got to figure it out. Is that the kind of God that we have? Answer, no. What does God do with our debts when we confess them to him? This is what we're trusting in. Here's what he does. When you come clean, God makes you clean. Amen? That's what you believe. That's what you believe when you confessed to God your sins and repented and said, I believe in the cross and what Christ has done for me. You believe that he's a God of character who is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, 1 John 1, 9, right? That's what you believe about God. That's what the word of God says about our God and his character, that he is faithful and he is just and that he's committed to forgiving our sins, our debts, our trespasses. Do you believe that? That's your second thought this morning. When you come clean, God makes you clean. And that's Jesus' take. Look at it. He's calling his disciples to pray in this way. So Jesus believes that his heavenly father will forgive disciples for their sin. Do you see that? And it's interesting because we've talked about the word debt and the problem that debt is. But this word forgive is also a commercial financial term. And it means to wipe the slate clean that's exactly what Christ did on a cross for you. He said, it, was, it is finished. The debt has been paid. He's paid that debt for you positionally. Beautiful truth. See, confession and prayer moves the heart of the Father to forgive you because God is committed. It's not just His feeling about you. He's committed. He's promised you, and He's a God of truth. I did something to you a minute ago that you didn't know. Maybe you knew when you looked at those verses. Those verses from Psalms and James. I didn't give you the whole verse. I want you to look back at those with me. Psalm 32, you see it up there? I'm going to read the whole thing again. I will confess the last sentence there. He's talked about how his bones... And strength is gone because he kept silent. But when he confessed, what was the result? Look at the last sentence. When I confessed my transgression to the Lord, you did what? You forgave me. That's the beautiful truth out of this passage for us. You forgave the iniquity of my sin, so God forgives. Psalm 51. You also see it here in verses 12 and 13. After he's asked God and confessed his sin to God, his deep sin to God, by the way, if you know David's story, and he asked God to do something, restore me to the joy of my salvation. That's what confession does, y'all. It restores the joy in your life. There's not the heaviness, but there's joy that God gives us. There's a strength that returns when there's restoration in our relationship with the Lord. And then last, David says this, then I will teach transgressors your ways. What kind of ways? Ways of mercy, that there's no way I deserve God's forgiveness, but he grants it to me anyway, and now I'm not only going to be forgiven, now I get to tell other people about it. Proverbs 28, conceals, won't prosper, but he who confesses, here it is, and forsakes them will obtain what? Mercy, not getting what you deserve. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord. James 5:16 ends this way: Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. We confess. What's the result? That you may be healed. Do you see all this? These beautiful truths of God? He forgives, He cleanses, he heals, He removes the dead, He brings back joy, he restores, He uses, He gives us freedom. Isn't that beautiful? Have you experienced, let me ask you, have you experienced the forgiveness of God? Do you know Him, or does the sin, the weight of that sin and debt, still sit on you? It's heavy, isn't it? He invites you to His table to know Him and be forgiven by Him, not just at salvation, but also as a believer. And maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're here this morning, and there's deep, dark things, and maybe nobody else knows about it, but like David and like the other psalmist, it is raking on your soul, and yet out of fear, out of fear of consequence, that you're not confessing your sin to God or others. Listen, He forgives, He cleanses, and it doesn't mean that there aren't consequences because of our sin, but He restores, and He brings life and freedom So we come clean with God because of our sin. But when we come clean, you need to believe that God will make you clean. He is faithful, and He is just to do that. Do you believe that? Can I tell you something else, though? As a Christian, when you look around, you look around at a world, is there much forgiveness in the world, (laughs) or is there just a bunch of canceling We don't do forgiveness very well in the world we live in. Never have, by the way. We don't, and and we can put that out there, but it also isn't, it's also true in our own lives, isn't it? We have trouble being forgiven and forgiving other people. We feel guilty and we have trouble receiving forgiveness and we also have trouble extending forgiveness, but this is God's way. This is what God does for us. And if you look just generally at religions, no religion works this way. Where the Son of God takes your debt upon Himself, that there's not this penance and punishment and this arbitrary thing where there's no assurance where God might forgive you. No, Christianity is the only place where God's justice, His love, and His mercy meet at the cross where we're forgiven where God's wrath is satisfied and his love is also expressed by the death of his son. God takes the debt of sin, he wipes it away, he forgives us. These are beautiful truths. We have a debt, he forgives us of those things, that's the solution. But how does God want us to live amongst one another? With confession to one another. Look at it in the text here. Verse 12, the assumption that God forgives our debts means this, that we're going to forgive other people who are debtors to us. People who have sinned against us is the point here. And then you come to verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 and 15 aren't really part of what we would call the Lord's Prayer, are they? But it's, it's like cliff notes. Jesus is clarifying in verse 14 and 15 one thing, one subject in the, the Lord's Prayer he doesn't do this with praise. He doesn't do this with thanksgiving. He doesn't do this with making requests to God, but he does do it with prayer. It's like he's saying, hey, just to clarify that statement, just as you have forgiven our debtors, just as we forgive our debtors, verse 14 and 15, look at it. For if you forgive others their trespass, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Now, here's what he's not saying. Understand this. He's not saying that you can earn salvation or right standing with with Him by forgiving someone else. So, if you go, how are you made right with God? Well, I forgave other, somebody else, so God's going to forgive me, positionally or ongoing. That's not how it works. And then the second phrase, here's the warning, but if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Here's the implication. You can't earn salvation. You can't earn fellowship with God by, just by forgiving people, but the evidence that you are a forgiven person is that you do just that, Right? That's what he's saying in this text. When I look at verse 14 and 15, there's one parable that comes to mind. And it's a little bit later in the book of Matthew. It's Matthew 18, 21 and following. It's the unmerciful, unforgiving servant. Do you remember that one? Remember when Peter comes to Jesus? Only Peter would do this probably. Like, how much do I have to forgive people? Seven times? How's that? That's a good holy number. And Jesus' response is what? No, 70 times 70. And when Jesus is not thinking 490 times you're good, and then the 491st time you're not good. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is you got to keep doing it. And then Jesus gives this parable of this king who is coming to collect debts. Remember? And there's a servant that says, King, master, be patient with me, just give me some more time. And I'll repay my debts. And the master, the king, not only gave him more time, he said, no, don't worry about it. I'm going to forgive all of your debts. And the number that was given was like a million dollars in our day. A million dollars worth of debt. And the master said, wipe that clean. And he said, you're forgiven of your debt. And then that guy who's been forgiven a million bucks... From the master goes, and it says he goes and finds another servant who owes him money, like $10 is the debt. And he demands the money. Give me my $10. He chokes him, and he yells at him, and he puts him in prison, and word gets back to the master about the unforgiving servant. And the master says this, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, a million bucks. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow certain as I had on you? See, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that in Matthew 6. I have forgiven you much, more than you could ever dream will you not forgive someone for something lesser? And everything's lesser from there, by the way. I know, but you don't know, pastor, what that person did to me. I don't, but this is the call of Jesus. This is the way, Jesus, to have a posture of forgiveness. So let me ask you, this is a hard question. I've been asking myself this most of the week and looking at my own relationships, what servant do we most resemble in the parable? Is your heart posture, at least, forgiveness for forgiveness of others? And maybe I don't know your scenario, and maybe it's hard. You don't know my scenarios, and we all have them, or we've all had them. Forgiveness is a hard thing. Forgiveness is something that's really misunderstood in a lot of ways in the world that we live in. Biblical forgiveness It's the difficult things, and our lives are messy. You ever go fishing, and you get the the fishing line tangled up, and you're trying to untangle it, and you're like, you just try for hours and hours, and you you can't get it untangled because you've made such a mess of it. And forgiveness in our lives with real relationships, with fallen people looks like that sometimes, where you can't unwind that thing. So what does biblical forgiveness look like? And just day to day. Ephesians 4.32 is really helpful. I want to give that to you. Ephesians 4.32 says this. Be kind to one about forgiveness, about relationships with one another. Be kind to one another. Apply that in a forgiveness situation in your life. Be tenderhearted. And then it says this. Forgiving one another the same way that God in Christ has forgiven you. And that sounds great, but what does that mean? How, here's a question, how has God in Christ forgiven you? How has that happened? If that's the way we're supposed to forgive, how has that happened? Let me give you a working definition, okay, today, of God's forgiveness of us. Because that's what we're talking about. And then I'm going to give you a working definition of human forgiveness, And I'm going to pause right here and say this. I know there's hurt in your life. Relational hurt amongst other believers, amongst people in your family, and even to bring this up is like playing operator, where you're, you're just slamming this thing. That's why it's so hard to talk about forgiveness, because we're broken people trying to forgive broken people. And we live in a world that's, doesn't really understand forgiveness biblically. We understand forgiveness therapeutically, and I'll get to that. But biblical forgiveness looks different than the world. You've got to first start with what Christ has done for you on a cross. God's forgiveness is this, a commitment. It's not a feeling. It's not a feeling. It's a commitment by God to pardon, to forgive graciously, That's the only posture that God has toward us. Those who confess, this is important, those who confess and believe so that they are reconciled to him, although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. I just want you to think about how a person comes to know Christ. You have God first who initiates. He's the offended. He initiates. His spirit does work in our hearts as the offender. It starts with God. Salvation starts with God. And then a person does what? What does a person do when they come to Christ and they realize that they're sinners and they need Christ's forgiveness that he offers? They, they do a couple of things. They confess. Isn't that what you did when you came to know Jesus? You confess that you were a sinner and God was holy. You confess that you needed Christ and his forgiveness of you. That's what salvation looks like. And so there is confession and repentance and belief that Christ would take his sins upon himself. There's a commitment and a promise from God that he would forgive you. Do you catch this? That's how forgiveness works with God. And so it involves two parties, at least. It's not just a feeling. It's not just this private thing. It involves real people. And that's hard, isn't it? And sometimes there's baggage though, right? You may have come to know Jesus, but that didn't eliminate some of the sins in your former life or even the life that you live right now, does it? Do you turn to your spouse and go, well, I'm forgiven by Jesus. You can't forgive me like two seconds after something happens. How's that working, right? There are consequences because of our actions, it's important for us to understand that. Here's what human forgiveness. This is parallel. I'm trying to use Ephesians 4 to really outline what forgiveness looks like. And this is hard in a world of therapeutic forgiveness. But human forgiveness is also a commitment. If you've really forgiven someone, you've made a decision. You've made a decision. It's not just this feeling that you have to do something that is really about self-interest in the way that you feel. A commitment by the offended Commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to a willingness to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Thomas Watson, an old Puritan pastor, said it this way I am bound to forgive my enemy, but I'm not bound to trust them. So there are consequences. I want to unpack some things in those definitions. You can take a picture if you want. I'll give them to you, any of this stuff to you if you want. Give you resources about this if you want. It's hard to unwind even in scripture how this works. First, I would tell you this. It's not going to be up here, but I'll I'll just give it to you. God's forgiveness is gracious, but it's not free. It wasn't free to Christ. Was it? He died for our sins. Our forgiveness is gracious, There's a cost to it. It's hard. It's not easy. It's not just flipping. It's challenging. It's it's painful. God's forgiveness is a promise and a commitment, not just a feeling that I have that I need everything to be okay, so I'm okay. It's a promise and a commitment that God makes to his children. Biblical forgiveness also, if it happens when it happens, lays the foundation for reconciliation, which is a what I would call a full forgiveness. And here's the hard one, okay? This, is, this one's hard. There's a lot of paper and trees been killed over this one. But in a real biblical sense, your salvation is conditioned, is it not, on your repentance and your confession to God as the offender to the offended is it not? We often hear this language in forgiveness world around forgiveness is unconditional. And there's a sense in which that is true. The posture of desiring reconciliation and being tenderhearted toward one another in forgiveness is all, ought always be the case. But sometimes forgiveness, because it takes two to tango, doesn't it? It takes two people to come to a table and figure that out. It it takes the person who's been the offender to come to the table and own what they've done. It also takes the offended to be willing to come to the table, which is also hard because you're hurt so bad. But that's what it takes. And oftentimes, people don't agree about the facts, do they? Well, you sinned against me. I'm not talking about hurt feelings. I'm talking about sin. That's That's how this works but you've got to come to the table. And so there is a condition in the sense, forgiveness is conditional in the sense that you've both got to be willing to come to the table. Can I tell you what therapeutic forgiveness looks like? It looks like a feeling for me, and it doesn't matter if we come to the table. That's, that's, that sounds good because it's a whole lot easier to come to the table with a person I don't want to come to the table with. But God's forgiveness is two parties coming to the table to be willing to forgive, And be willing to say, I did wrong. That's what full forgiveness looks like. And I would guess in a room this size, and I know in my life, there are many relationships over the years because there's two broken people that can't put things together, whether it's facts of the situation or whether it's hurts they can't bring to the table. There is a place, okay? And it's a consequence of the brokenness of it. There are places where you don't get And I hope this is encouraging to you. I hope it doesn't make you bitter or keep you where you're at. But there are situations where you can't get to full reconciliation or full forgiveness. Because people either don't agree or won't come to the table. But you can have something. You can have consolation. You might not get reconciliation. But you can have consolation with God that your posture and your desire is to either extend forgiveness to someone or be forgiven. You catch that? And listen, in a room this big, I'm trying to give you principles more than I'm trying to answer the call of your situation, whatever that might be. So I'm happy to meet with you. I'm happy to talk with you and go. I mean, Jesus says that as far as it depends on you, right? As far as it depends on you, be at peace. With all men. And so the real question and all of that, and there's a lot there to unpack as we unpack forgiveness, and unforgiveness is like that fishing string sometimes, and situations are, are difficult. but here's the operative question that you've got to ask yourself. So you don't fall into the bitter category, or you don't fall into the ambivalent category. Here's the question. Do you, as someone who's been forgiven for much, do you have a heart posture? Do you have a heart posture to extend or receive forgiveness from others? That's the operative question. So we forgive others the way God has forgiven us. Somebody said it this way. We're never more like God, in a good way, we're never more like God Than when we forgive. If you think about the activity of God toward human beings every day, I'm just going to assume beyond sustaining the world, protecting the world, and knowing there's a whole lot of forgiveness that God extends, isn't there? Both in salvation and in restoration. You're never more like God than when you choose and commit to forgive. So why don't we confess? We have a debt. What does God do? He forgives, and then he calls us to be forgiving to others. There's an old radio commercial. I think it also became a TV commercial. And the punchline from this motel chain that stood the test of time, this commercial that stood the test of 37 years of radio and TV commercial, Started in 1986, and it was actually an ad lib from the voice guy, and it just stuck. And there's been different iterations of the punchline from this motel chain ad. But it's one of the most successful radio commercials and TV commercials of all time, at least in the United States. Perhaps you might be cluing in to what it is. The punchline goes like this. I'm not sure I can do it justice. I'm Tom Dett from Motel 6, and we'll leave the light on for you. You ever heard that one? We'll leave the light on for you. And maybe you're here and you go, man, you can leave the light on for me, Motel 6, but I'm not really interested in that. I'm not really interested in uh, roaches and bed bugs, and My spouse ain't going there for sure. Maybe you're single. Maybe that'll work out. But listen, since the dawn of time, since Adam and Eve fell into sin and darkness, God's light has been on. It's been on and it's been available for the weary, sin-laden traveler who's traveling in the dark of their sin. Who need the light that only God can provide that need a place to find rest for their weary souls, need rest and ability to find forgiveness. And this light doesn't cost a dime. And it's better than even the best of places that you could ever lay your head. See, God leaves the light on for you, C3. No matter how dark the darkness is, no matter how much you say, God can't forgive me, he can He leaves the light on for you. Your takeaway today is this. Confession brings you out of the darkness into the light so that you can rest in God's forgiving grace. Come out of the darkness, C3. Come out of the darkness into the light and find the forgiveness that can be yours.